Good day, folks, and welcome to the second edition of this podcast, and we're calling it The Religious Lie. And I was thinking recently how happy I am to be doing this during a time of the pandemic, because even though I can't see you, I actually get to talk to people. And frankly, that's my national pastime. I don't know what to do unless I'm talking to someone. Frankly, my wife, she's a little tired of listening to me. And the other day I had some people over the house, a few couples, and I unloaded on them. I felt bad afterwards because they left shaking their heads. But anyway, I get to talk to you, and thanks to my granddaughter's technologically wizardry, I get to talk to you, and I'm also going to start up a blog so we can communicate that way. I'm going to post some of the writings that I've done. And I'm hoping that becomes a blessing. In a month, you might get sick of me, but I got this small window in the meantime. Anyway, the last time we introduced the religious lie, and I was thinking everything that I said, I probably never got around in the introduction to actually saying, what is the religious lie? And to discover that, we got to go back to the beginning. It started in the uh, Garden of Eden, and I think that most of you probably know the story of Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden. That's where, before God even created that garden, it first says the world and the earth was empty and void, and I wanted to make note that that's a picture not only of creation back then, but it's also a, a picture of us. Unless God moves in our life and moves upon our hearts, that's exactly what we are. Without him, we're empty and void. When we're not one with our creator, what are we left to do? We try to fill that void with a whole bunch of things, and, you know, good luck with that. Because we fill it with one thing, and then we need another, and then after that, another, and hopefully one day we realize they're all just fillers. Fillers are just that, fillers. There's no real substance. And sadly, how many people do you know are walking around today empty and void, looking for fulfillment that they can only find in Jesus? And anyway, going back to the beginning, God built for Adam and Eve life in a perfect zip code. I mean, they had luscious fruit and vegetables just beckoning from their backyard, climate control conditions that were like living in Hawaii year-round. Your home was a majestic garden paradise. Adam had a knockout trophy partner, Eve, to share it all with. And she didn't even have to worry about going shopping. She didn't have to worry about what to wear. This was a casual, come-as-you-are approach to life. Adam and Eve had no fear. No shame, no blame. They didn't even know what insecurity was. They were in perfect harmony with their God, with each other, and all of creation. And to boot, God gave them dominion over all the earth. Imagine, they had the highest of positions, all earthly possessions, and a mandate to rule and reign. How and why would you ever screw that up? And yet we all know how the story ends. God made Adam and Eve in the image and likeness of God, but it wasn't enough to be in his image and likeness. We had to be God. And folks, that is the religious lie. Man playing God. It started in the garden, and it still continues to this day. And I don't think we can make any mistake. The gaff in the garden has come with a real heavy cost. Now, 
What do we do now? We consume ourselves with trying to cover our shame, control our fears, and cope with all the endless insecurities we all have. And, and gang, that's a picture of every single one of us. We can't say, well, that's not me. Yes, we're all full of a false sense outside of Christ. We're all full of a false sense of pride, fear, shame, anger, blame, control. It's all the same. Despondency, discouragement, insecurity. There's only two types of people in the world. Redeemed sinners and unredeemed sinners. And the only positive thing you could ever say about sin is it puts us all on the same foot. We're all equal. And so what now? With our fall in the garden, we have continuous damaging storms, countless and costly wars, and relationships that are at best 50-50 chance of making it. We were once thriving with abundant life, and now what? We live with the harmful effects of disease and death, so much for trying to be God. And one would think that by now, maybe we would have learned our lesson. And what does history teach us? That we really learn nothing from history. We foolishly keep playing the same God game and we're hoping for different results. I think that's called the definition of insanity. Why do we do it? Why do we continuously chase our tails? Why are we hopelessly trapped in a religious lie that we've believed since the fall of the garden? We can be duped into a self-righteous religious lifestyle that causes us to persist in our struggle to be as God. And with our God complex, we're really blind to truth that sets us free. Throughout history, man has tried to rule over man as God. Kingdom after kingdom, we've always had these supposed elitist rulers who are going to dictate to others how they're supposed to think, act, and it all winds up what? Serving them. And like the serpent in the garden, they deceive you into believing it's all for the greater good, that they have nothing but your best interest at heart. Really? Do you think in the garden that the serpent's agenda was about God and Adam and Eve? I think it was about him. Nothing has changed since then. The one using the serpent today, he wants to be God and rule over us. And he wants to steal the dominion that Adam and Eve were given over the earth. Well, the tactics might change with time, but the deception is all the same. And where do you see it? Well, you see it in man-made religion. You see it in government. You see it in finance. You see it in media. And even in arts and entertainment. And especially with technology. Don't get me wrong, technology can be a good thing when it's in the hands of good people. But it can be an evil thing when it's in the hands of evil people. But all these pets and avants, these big shots who are trying to play God, they want to subject you to endless and endless rules and regulations and laws and all they do is produce fear and shame and anger and blame and despondent division. And with all of that, that's how they rule over us. You know, the fact is God never intended us to live out of law. He wanted us to live under love. 
And it's always been that way. Even the one law that he gave in the Garden of Eden, he told them, don't eat from the tr knowledge of the tree of good and evil. And we're going to discuss that down the road of what that was all about. But that wasn't really some law designed to prohibit them. It was really a prescription for their life so that they would keep eating from the tree of life and have the abundant life that he had called them to. But not today. Today we want to live under laws and laws. Do you know in our federal government, we have over 5,000 federal laws, and I'm not even talking on the state level. I'm just talking on the federal level. There's over 5,000 federal laws, but it doesn't end there. There's hundreds of thousands of regulations over the years that our Congress has produced. And if you violate any one of those, you can be prosecuted just like it was any other law. We can't even track of all the laws that we keep making. And how are we doing with all that? Playing God. Well, the more and more laws we create, the more and more crime we have. And so what's our answer to that? Well, why don't we make more and more laws so that we have more and more crime? That's how ridiculous it is when man tries to play God. And don't get me wrong, when man has fallen in his fallen state, he does need some kind of a guidance. For years, God left man to his own conscience. How'd that work out? Man got so more evil and evil and evil. Why? Because his conscience, once he was in a fallen state, was all messed up. There was all that evil and good and good and evil, and it's working against each other, and he develops this pride, and he, he gets worse and worse and worse to the point where God had to step in. You've all heard of the flood, Noah and the flood, and you think, geez, what an awful thing all those people died. And yes, it is an awful thing that all those people died. But if God didn't step in, man left to his conscience and left to himself was going to destroy himself anyway because that's what happens with us. So when God raised up the nation of Israel, he's going to give them some guidance. So he has Moses go up into the mount. And you, you probably have seen that. You've seen the Charlton Heston movie, The Ten Commandments. I always liked that where God gives them ten commandments. He gave Moses one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Not five thousand, not hundreds of thousand, just ten he gives him. And they're not really prohibitions, but they're prescriptions for life. Most of them are just common sense. He comes down with just two tablets. On the one side, he's got four that deals with man's relationship with God. The other tablet's dealing with man's relationship with each other. And what does he tell him? Well, I'm the Lord that created you and loved you and, and I care for you and I want nothing but the best for you and so I'm asking you to have no other gods before me. I think that's reasonable. And he says, I want you to keep the Lord's day. What did he mean by that? These people had just come out of slavery. They had never known any rest. They were like brutally treated 365 days a year. And so he says, there's one day of the week where I want you to actually rest and I want you to remember back to when you were slaves and remember the one that was me that brought you out of that. So for one day when you're having that rest, I want you to thank and praise me for the fact that I led you out. What else he asked them? Well, I don't want you to make idols. You see all the heathen nations at back time, they were making all these idols of uh, symbols of vipers and lizards, the sun, the moon, the stars. And they were calling them all their gods. 
And he's saying, one day I'll send you Jesus and you'll know exactly what I look like and you'll know who I am. But in the meantime, can you not make me look like a lizard? And then he told him, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, people think of that today. They think, well, he's talking about don't swear, don't use Jesus' name when you, when you... No, no. They, they, back in that culture at that time when he gave this commandment, they wouldn't even express the name of God because it was too revered, too much for them to do that. As a matter of fact, when they wrote it, they wouldn't even write out his whole name. That's not what he was talking about. He was telling them, don't throw around my name for your own purposes. By the time Jesus had come on the scene, what they were doing is they were swearing oaths and they were binding their oaths with his name and their oaths were all about their own agenda. It was all about what they wanted and they were using God's name. Do you think it's any different today? Look what we do. We've had wars that were fought in, in his name, using his name. We have racism, prejudice. It's all using his name. And even in religion today, in the, quote, church world, we see greed and avarice. And everything's about positions, possessions, power, careers, notoriety, building mansions, building cathedrals. And we do it all in his name. And it's nothing new. All of these laws and all of this stuff has been going on for centuries. At the time of Jesus... They had this group of people called the Pharisees. They actually they had several groups back then. Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, Essenes, Zealots. They had all these different groups. But the Pharisees were considered to be the holy ones. They were the ones that the people looked up to. And as the religious, spiritual leaders of their day... Of course, Jesus later on called them uh, vipers, whited sepulchers, and that they were uh, full of dead men's bones. So I, I don't know. But those are the ones, the people that were looking up to. But they had come up with, prior to Christ, they had written books, and they had come up with 613 rules and regulations about how people are supposed to live. Not 10. Moses had 10. And they said they were followers of him. They had 613, but you know what? Out of the 613, 365 of them were negative. So the majority of them were negative. Why 365? Well, there's 365 days in a year, so I guess they had one negative for every day. And it had to do with every little silly thing man did in the course of his life. Nothing to do with what God would have said. I mean, Wednesday, I don't know, uh, no Prince Spaghetti today. God said no, lentil soup today. I only hope he didn't have one for Lay's potato chips. Oh, my God. If I had all the money back that I've spent on Lay's potato chips, I think I'd be a millionaire. But then, think about it. A million dollars in one hand or opening up a fresh bag of Lay's in the other hand. I'm going with the lease. In any event, in Matthew, the 15th chapter, Jesus addresses these Pharisees. Now, they're trying to trap him. Good luck with that. And they come to him and they say, how come your disciples transgress all our traditions? Because they don't wash right before they eat. 
They don't wash their hands in the proper way. See, they had this whole pregame ritual on how you're supposed to do before you ate. That's how silly it was. I had two sons in the Marines, and when they went to the mess hall, I told them, you got five minutes to, you know, you can eat all you want, but you only got five minutes to do it. I don't think they were going to be in the Pharisees' pregame ritual. And Jesus, you know what he answered them? Well, he said, why do you transgress the commandments of God by all your man-made traditions? So that's been going on all through history. It's been going on since the time of Christ today. We make man-made traditions. We make man-made rules and regulations. And then we put them in a, and then we tell people they're gods. And Jesus said, you have made your man-made traditions through them all, you've made the commandments of God of no effect at all. And the same thing goes on. Today we have edicts, encyclicals, bylaws, all this stuff that surpasses anything that Jesus ever taught. And yet we keep doing it. Stuck in the religious lie. What about the other tablets Moses had? I talk about the ones that had four that had to do with God. And then there were the other six that had to do with man. Basically, again, they're common sense things that would give you nothing but a blessed life. Most of it is stuff that's inherited in us when we're little children. We're, we're like, we like know it. What we do with that when we get older, of course, is, is a decision we make. The first thing he says is, he talks about family. He says, honor your father and mother. He wants the honoring of a family, each other in the family honoring each other, starting with the mom and dad. And this is serious, and make no mistake about it. From the time of the Garden of Eden, Satan through the serpent went after Adam and Eve because he wanted their family destroyed. When you study that and you see the follow-up, their children, Cain and Abel, Cain killed Abel. The enemy was able to get in there and destroy that family, and that's exactly what he's looking for today. It's the same thing. He wants division, dissension, and destruction in the family. It's his number one priority. Why? Because any nation only goes as so far as the family unit takes it. Destroy the family unit. Destroy the one thing that holds us all together, and you can then rule over people as God. And just look what's happened to our families. And I'm not trying to judge because there's a ton of single moms and dads out there that are doing everything they can in their power to try to overcome all the nonsense that's happened in our world. The powers of darkness have used all our institutions today to make anything that is godly, ethical, moral, responsible, accountable, to make all that as something that is just negative and restrictive and it's keeping you from becoming all you can be. And we believe that lie. And the family unit falters. And who suffers? The kid suffers. And then, crazily, who's going to pick up the pieces? When the family's hurt and the kids are suffering, the same elitist people in the government to put them in that position in the first place. Guys, we're looking to fix Washington, the Senate, Congress, Supreme Court, governors, lieutenant governors, mayors, city councilmen, selectmen, aldermen, county commissioners, police departments, fire departments, 
education department, judges, lawyers, legislators, FBI, CIA, Federal Reserve, news media, all the corporations, all those behind the scene manipulators, the Pentagon, classrooms. We're looking to fix everything. And you know where it all starts? Right in our own home. There's never going to be anything changed until it first changes in our own house. But sadly, the enemy always gets us looking elsewhere. He always makes know the real problem is someplace else. The real problem is just getting the right people in office, just fixing all of that, and then everything will be okay. Deflect from where the real problem is. Do you know years ago, and you can look this up, uh, this was actually prior to World War II, the powers behind the scenes decided that they wanted to use psychology to see how they could shift the society so that they could rule over them, so that they could f- find a way. And they had this guy, his name was Edward Bernays, B-E-R-N-A-Y-S, and again, you can Google that and look this up. And what they came up with is subjection by distraction. If we distract them enough, with other things, if we play to all the things that we know that's inside them that we really know that they want, then we can distract them from what we're really doing. And that I'm talking in the 1930s when that started, and they keep going, going, going to the point where you see it today more and more and more, and sadly, the people don't even notice it, that they're being distracted. And they use a a variety of things. They play on different things, legitimate things. You know, God has given us this world to enjoy. He's given us things to use, but never abuse. Whenever we have an inordinate affection for something, that's dangerous. You can use it, but when it dominates you to the point where you can't live without it and you need it more and more and more and more, then that's dangerous and that will distract you and it will cause you destruction. And there's different things that they use today. A simple thing like money. Don't we not need money in our society? Of course we do. You've got to buy and sell and you need money to use it. But you don't think money's become a god to people? You don't think they've... There's people that their whole life is about how much money they have, how much they're building up assets and how they hold on to those assets and they don't realize one day they're going to fall on their asset. Food is a, a wonderful thing that God has given us to enjoy. You don't think we go overboard with it? And they market all this stuff and market all this stuff and market all this stuff to make you think that if you don't do it, there's something wrong with you. Sports. Sports is a wonderful diversion in life. I mean, you're working and you and you got all these other things going on in life so you can sit and watch something, and, you know, for a couple of hours. But I'll tell you what, when sports becomes the number one religion in the country and religion becomes the number one sport in the country, something's wrong with that picture. But there's so many ways that they use to distract us. Even something as silly as exercise. Exercise is a wonderful thing for us. Do you know that there's some people that they can't live unless they go to the gym for hours? They, they can't even function. I knew a guy was in the gym one time, and he wasn't going to the gym to work out. He was OCDing in the gym. 
one time we had a, a, a serious snowstorm and he couldn't go to the gym that day. And so I saw him after that and I said, hey, how'd you make out in the snowstorm? Did you work out at home? Oh, no. Oh, no. I only work out in the gym. And so I said, if I can't go to the gym, I don't eat today. Okay. You can't eat because you didn't go to the gym. You know, I haven't seen that guy in the pandemic. Good luck with that. But anyway, these are all the kinds of things that they're using to the inordinate affections that they develop by marketing, marketing, marketing to distract us from what the real truth is, to distract us from what they're doing. They're playing God. What else did was in that tablet that Moses had? Well, he told us, don't murder, lie, cheat or steal. Now, I don't know. To me, that's common sense, too. I don't know any kid that was ever born. And, and the first thing he says when he comes out is, gee, I can't wait until the first time I lie, cheat, steal, and murder. No, I don't think so. It's common sense to have a blessed, abundant life by not doing these things. And then he told them, honor your marriage vows. Well, that seems like a good thing to do if you decided to get married. You mean I can't just eat, drink, and chase Mary? No, the chase is over. That's not a recipe for a good marriage. And yes, there are some times where some things can happen and you have no control over it. There are deal breakers in a marriage and unfortunately divorce happens. But if it's going to unfortunately happen... Let it be over a legitimate deal breaker, not something in our relationship that if we had just worked through it, we could have actually grown in the relationship. And furthermore, there's a whole lot of young people watching, and I, do you know that young people, a lot of them don't even want to get married today, and, and sometimes we criticize them for that. Well, why are we criticizing them? Don't you think we produce after our own kind? Don't you think that maybe there's a reason that they've looked on and saw what's going on and they say, gee, I don't think I want to do that? And I don't, talking about whether you think it's right or wrong, I'm talking about before we criticize them. Years ago, a guy told me one time, he said, if you point your finger at one person, there's three pointing back at you. Oh, boy. Okay, what else did he say? He said not to covet. Well, again, that's, a, that's just common sense. When, when Dipsy Dan gloats down your driveway or into his driveway with a brand new BMW while you're parking your 07 Altima with 140K miles on it, don't fire through the door and say, Kathy, we're getting a new car today. Oh, how come? We can't really afford one, right? Because Dipsy Dan got one. You get the point. See, these ten laws that Moses came down with, again, I've said this three times, they're prescriptions for an abundant life. Do you know that Jesus, before he left, he, he left us just one? One law. It's in uh, John in the 13th chapter. He says, guys, I'm giving, this is not too long before he left. He said, guys, I'm giving you a new commandment. He says, I want you to love one another. He told them, as I've loved you, I want you to love one another. And then the kicker is, he told them, 
Did you know how all the unbelievers are going to know that you belong to me? He said, by the love they see you sharing one for another. You see, all the laws that were given, Jesus said this one law, love, will fulfill all those other laws. When you're living out of love, you're not violating any law. And you're not focusing on the laws. God never called us in Christ to live our lives focusing on laws. He told us to follow him in love. And because he first loved us, and he knows that once we're filled with his love, then we can love one another. And he's talking to his own people, his followers. He's not talking to unbelievers there. He's telling him the only way they're ever going to know your mind is when they see my character and my love reflected and coming forth through you. And so when they look at us today, what are they seeing? Are they seeing love in action? All a religious lie can ever offer people is fear, shame, anger, blame, criticize, judgment, condemnation, pride, envy, jealousy. And all with an overall outlook on life that I'll never measure up to God and others, but I'll keep trying anyway because just maybe if I beat myself up enough and punish myself enough, I can earn some favor with God and others if I just keep all these laws no that'll never work Jesus stands with open arms he says come unto me all you that are laboring all of you that in your own efforts are trying to make yourself better before me and others and he says I'm going to give you rest and he told them, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now he's giving them an example that they would understand back then as farmers. A team of oxen would lead the cart. And they, of course they worked with the team of oxen. But at the front of that team was the lead ox. And Jesus was trying to tell them, I'm the lead ox. I've taken the heavy yoke upon me. I'm the one that's doing all the work. I do all the work before you. And all you have to do is follow. You don't come to Jesus because you're good enough. You come to him because you know you need redemption and you know he loves me. He died on a cross for me. He redeemed me. And he's saying he will release me of all the burdens and bondage that I've lived under all my life. He does the work and we follow him. And you know what? When we do that, instead of fear, he offers us hope. Instead of shame, he offers us innocence. Instead of anger, he offers us peace. Instead of blame, he offers us healing. Instead of criticism, he offers encouragement. Instead of judgment, he offers mercy. Instead of condemnation, he offers freedom. Instead of living out of law, he offers a life of love. He's the way, he's the truth, and he's the life. 
He's a God that loves us, has redeemed us, and given us eternal life. And the only thing he asks is for us to say yes and follow him. And I know there's some of you that could be listening to me and you've been hurt in relationships and you have every legitimate reason for being afraid to open up your heart. I'm Italian and I'm going to get emotional. You've spent years protecting yourself from ever getting hurt again. You find it easier to live out of law than to live out of love. Why? Because it's safer. You can find loopholes. You can make amendments. Love means I have to be transparent. I have to be open. Could you be any more transparent than Jesus on a cross, stripped naked, being persecuted in front of everybody and being ridiculed by them? Yes, it's risky. And when you love, you're vulnerable. But what's the alternative? Fear controlling every day, trying to control and trying to blame and, and then the insecurities. And you know the greatest reason you need to leave it all behind? Because you're so tired. You're just so tired of trying to control everything, of building walls brick by brick around yourself. You're tired of trying to be responsible for your own well-being, and you're tired of trying to be responsible for everybody around you. You need relief. You need rest. And I'm telling you, he will never hurt you. He'll never leave you. He will never forsake you. He'll walk with you. He'll talk with you. He'll treat you like you're his friend, like you're a lover, like he's, you're the only one for him. When you're afraid, he'll hold your hand. When you're tired, he'll give you rest. When you fail, he'll lift you up. When you laugh, he laughs with you. When you cry, he cries with you. And every tear you've ever shed, he's got it in a bottle right next to his heart. Every time you hurt, he hurt with you. Every time you cried, he cried with you. And all he's asking today is one more time come to the altar. He's waiting like the bridegroom at the altar. And all he's waiting is for you to say, yes, I will follow you. It's our way out of the religious lie and all the other lies that have deceived us and attempted to destroy us. And you may have been legitimately victimized in life but I can tell you we can be victims or we can be victors and all we have to do to be a victor is say yes I'm going to leave it there the next time when we get together, we'll talk about, we'll go back to the beginning again, and we're going to talk about the sting operation that took place in the garden and the one, the con man that was behind the whole thing. But until then, God blessed. Have a blessed and wonderful day. And again, thank you so much for listening and see you the next time.